today. Uh, doctor, if I ask what's going on, will you tell me? Certainly, Lantern. I regret to say that you are my prisoner. Oh yeah? Well, don't regret it for too long, Doc. Since this radiation cage isn't yellow, I'm going to bust out of here. No use. Can't summon the willpower necessary for my power ring to pull me free. But this gizmo is powered by my ring, so once the 24-hour charge runs out, I can- In my stasis field, time will not pass. You will not age, nor will your ring lose its charge. Again, I truly regret my involving you in this. For your eternity will be a lonely one. Professor Zoom Productions, in association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network, proudly present for your listening pleasure the Dun and One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, hosted by Professor Zoom Yukonori. Today's episode Knocked for a Loop. Previously on the Dun and One Wonders podcast Wonder Show. You can't go home again, they say. Well, I say I can. All I need is a map. And then I can use the interdimensional device and plant it in my Nova to get there. <gasps> it is I, the Reverse Flash, the new management of the Dun and One Wonders podcast Wonder Show. Bizarro not take care of you. Yellow Flash Man hurt Grundy's friend, so Grundy hurt him. Grundy say maybe we should not put Yellow Flashy Man back where he was. Any disruption to the pre-crisis continuity could imbalance the multi-space-time continuum that could essentially destroy all of existence. I was actually telling Bizarro to not throw Thawne into the portal yet. Okay, me no throw. Wait, I didn't mean... Do we know when and where Thawne ended up? If we do not put him back in his proper timeline soon, the time paradox could cause the entire space-time continuum to... fold in on itself. And now, the continuation.
That was Samantha Fox performing Out of Our Hands, the 12th track from her 1988 album, I Wanna Have Some Fun. And I have a very special guest with me today to talk about this particular song on the Zoom for Sam podcast. None other than Ms. Samantha Fox herself. Welcome to my humble podcast, Ms. Fox. Hi, Zoom. I think it's a great idea, this Zoom for Sam podcast. I'm very flattered. And anybody who plays my music and who supports me, yes, I'm very flattered and very honoured. The honour is truly mine, Ms. Fox, and I am very honoured to talk to you about one of my favourite tracks from this album, Out of Our Hands. Yeah, that to me, that song is a beautiful song. Um, it's a ballad, which I love singing, because back in the old days, most of my songs were fast. Um, Out of Our Hands is about um, losing somebody very dear. I know it's not very happy. Well, uh, no, but it, but it still touched my heart, uh, mainly for the reason of loss, as you just stated. Sometimes there's a cathartic comfort in listening to sad songs. Yes, it's a sad song, but everybody can relate to that. I guess by our, our age, by now, we've all lost somebody very dear to us and close to our heart. So that song's dedicated to all the people that we've lost and loved, really. Yes, we both can relate to that. I know you'd lost your beloved Myra a few years ago, and I myself had lost the first... Ah! What... what is that? <laughs> Professor Zoom worry now that him am in danger. Yes. I, I mean, no. You're welcome, Bizarro. Is everyone all right? Mm. I think so. Grundy? Grundy fine. Thanks to Cowboy Man and his magic horse. Indeed. Entity Zoom Yukonori was correct in stating that the interdimensional device implanted within Equid Nova would come in handy. Podcast host and audio editor's note. This was stated during the mailroom segment of episode 4 of the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show. And perhaps fewer listeners will skip over that segment going forward. You're Mike Glib for someone who just lost his home and wife and youngins and planet. Actually, after what Solomon Grundy had done to the studio in episode 3, Lanos and I moved the show operations to the DC Earth 1 universe, which was reconstructed, though unpopulated, after the Infinite Crisis event, which had. Wait a minute. You mean we've been hanging out the last two episodes in my home D-mention? And no one else was there? No wonder the Home Depot wasn't picking up that there telephone. What is interesting is that I did not even know about the reconstructed Earth-1 universe. I only found out when I discovered that Lanos was actually tracking it down, though he would not tell me why he was doing so. I do not suppose you would know anything about that, Mr. Manning. Heh. <laughs> you got me, partner. I tricked Lamo into figuring out the way back to Earth-1 so I could settle the score with old Superman and that glory hog John P. Alstrom. But I see now why that's no longer a good idea. I ain't messing with no timelines ever again. Legion of Zoom am all alone here. Of course, the internet was knocked out, so why not the phone lines too? Place look like Little Professor Man Studio. Kinda. Maybe it be other Little Professor Man? Bizarro, please turn me away so I cannot see. Okay. 
Hey there, uh, you can come out now. It's okay. I'm... You're... Wow. You're... Wow. Whoa, this one's a robo-professor. No, he's a hemiplegic just like me. Except he is using robotic hybrid-assistive limbs to help him move. I'm envious. I did not qualify to have those back on my Earth. Your Earth? Are, are you saying you're like those sliders on the telly? But for real? Uh, well... <laughs> if and you don't mind, I think Nova's a bit cramped in here. I'm gonna take him outside so he can roam around a bit while you two get acquainted. Solomon Grundy, go with you. Bizarro should not come too. Uh, wait. I mean, don't wait, Bizarro. Uh, Zoom? Sorry for crashing in on you like this while... Were you in the middle of a podcast? Uh, I was. But the transcontinental comlink to London was cut off by your... Stargate, or whatever that was. It appears the overly sensitive circuitry of the computer systems in this dimension's podcast studio were overloaded by the energies from Equid Nova's interdimensional device. Can you make repairs? Affirmative. But I require more power than what remains in this portable projection unit. I don't suppose, Zoom, that we could impose on your hospitality for a bit, as well as for an electrical outlet and an extra chair? At least until we could fix the damage we had caused. Wow, you you really are me. Uh, uh, yes, of course. Just a moment. And then after that is done, we can figure out how to get back home. Unfortunately, Equid Nova's interdimensional device picked this destination universe at random. It does not know how to get back to your home dimension from here, only from the Earth-1 universe. Which no longer exists. Lovely. And without our interspatial time conveyor, we are all essentially trapped here. You should have retrieved that instead of my command module. We were not leaving anyone behind, Lenos. We had left the narrator behind. We did? Sometime later, after Professor Zoom and Lenos had settled in to alternate Zoom Yukonori's studio... See, Lenos, we did not leave the narrator behind. You simply did not see Grundy grab him as we escaped. I hover corrected. Thank you again, uh, Zoom, for the tea. And for letting me use your old wheelchair. It felt a bit awkward having Bizarro carrying me around everywhere. Uh, to be completely candid, I'm a bit glad your busy row and Grandy decided to go with your Pegasus rancher friend. Where did they go, exactly? Huh. I'm actually not sure. I thought they were stretching Nova's legs there in your backyard. But I guess they needed a little more free space. If you don't mind my saying so, I find them to be a bit... unnerving. I get that. They are supervillains. But they're actually good people. Once you get to know them. And they you. So, you are all podcasters like me? Indeed. The crew and I have a program called the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. A celebration of comic book tales that are able to tell a complete story within a single issue. A proud yet humble member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Comic book tales? Really? I hadn't read a comic book since I was 16. Not since... well, 16. Wait, since 
March 18th, 1980. Oh, you too. When I saw your wedding ring, I had actually hoped that you at least... Well, I was lucky to find love again. I'm glad at least one of us did. Uh, what type of podcast do you do? Oh, uh, it's a Samantha Fox fan podcast. You know, the singer. Get out. Get out of my own studio? Sorry, it was an expression I had picked up from another podcaster named Shag Matthews. It's the same as, uh, no way. Oh, uh, well, yes way. In fact, I was recording an interview with Ms. Fox when you had- Get out! Uh, what I meant to say was, uh, wow. I am so, so very sorry that we disrupted that. I know how much Ms. Fox means to you. Uh, to us. As Entity Shag Matthews would say, she's hot. That is not the reason, Lanos. How soon can we get this system back online? I estimate 56.4 minutes. Thank you, Lanos. I suppose it's 56.3 minutes. No countdown is necessary, Lanos. Zoom, I trust you would be able to reschedule your interview? Oh, indeed. We had actually slotted a follow-up time later in the week in case we needed more time than we allotted today, so, so we should be fine. So you actually have a Zoom Loves Sam podcast. Zoom for Sam, actually. But yes, I am envious, again. Not just that you had actually up and done a Sam Fox podcast, but that you managed to arrange for Ms. Fox herself to be a guest. It sounds like you have a good sense of my podcast already, but I have no inkling about yours. Why don't you give me a demonstration while we wait for your little holographic friend here to finish fixing my setup? Oh, well, to do that, I would need Lanos, and he's already busy fixing your... I am quite capable of performing up to five quintillion processing tasks at once. Five quintillion? That is remarkable. But before we begin, may I ask the entity Zoom Yukonore of this universe about that discarded device in the northeast corner? Oh, that's my old PS3 gaming system. I was planning to donate it. Not much use for it now, since I can't find a decent one-handed controller. Why do you ask? I require some of the circuitry and components from that system, and a few other redundant devices in your studio, if you can spare them. Redundant? In addition to making repairs, I am taking the liberty of adding additional enhancements that would make your local area network router and garage door opener obsolete. Really? Well, then, help yourself, Laynote. I am Lanos, the logical alternative for mending electrical overloads. Uh, wait a moment. That acronym does not... It's a running gag. I must say, this holographic cube computer of yours is quite a technical marvel. Where did you get it? Lanos, why don't you introduce yourself? Acknowledged. Commencing a bridged recapitulation of the Lanos entry from Zoom's Who in the DC Extended Universe. Volume 1, page 11. To enable members of the Green Lantern Corps to offer aid in sectors of space too distant to travel by power ring, the Guardians of the Universe developed the Interceptor, one of the fastest starships ever created. This prototype ship was capable of generating a transwarp field to jump thousands of light-years in seconds. 
The interceptor traveled so fast that it required an artificial intelligence to administer its navigational functions and other advanced capabilities. The first artificial intelligence, later named Aya by Green Lantern Hal Jordan, was created with a number of protocols in order to ensure the safe operation of the ship as well as serve as an autopilot. Following the death of numerous Green Lanterns in the distant frontier space by mysterious attackers, later revealed to be the Red Lantern Corps, Hal Jordan and Kilowog commandeered the Interceptor to journey to that region of space to combat the threat. In doing so, Jordan enabled Aya to bypass a number of her established protocols, which eventually led to Aya attaining sentience as well as independence, housing her program in an android body that resembled a female humanoid. After the Red Lantern threat was vanquished and the Interceptor was returned to Oa, the science director of the Guardians, who had also created the AI program, removed Aya from the Interceptor and planned to dissect her to find out how she had evolved beyond her programming. In the meantime, a new navigational AI was installed in the starship, LANOS, the Lightspeed Astronomical Navigational Operating System. While meant to be an improvement over Aya, this new AI was actually mechanical by comparison and was oblivious to the comfort or opinions of the Interceptor's passengers. Hal Jordan and Kilowog immediately took to disliking Lanos when they resumed their use of the Interceptor, referring to the replacement AI as Lamo. When the Green Lanterns had learned that Aya was to be dissected on Oa, Hal and Kilowog removed Aya's data core from her robot body and switched it with that of Lanos. When Lanos was activated in Aya's body among the arrival of the science director, he repeatedly claimed that he was not Aya, but Lanos. The science director continued with the dissection and analysis, thinking Lanos's claims to be a part of Aya's self-preservation mechanism. When the Green Lanterns were fighting the menace of the android Manhunters, who were under control of the Anti-Monitor, Aya discovered that her functioning was crippled by her conflicting emotions regarding an Interceptor crewman, a Red Lantern named Razor. Aya then shut down the emotional part of her program in order to process more efficiently and was able to single-handedly defeat the Anti-Monitor by absorbing all of the energy from the Interceptor's engine, even though this plan had put the Interceptor crew at risk. In addition, this defeat actually resulted in Aya merging with the Anti-Monitor's robotic shell. Now dubbed the Aya Monitor, this emotionless AI now developed an affinity for the equally emotionless Manhunter machines and decided that organic life was the true menace of the universe. 
A short time later, another copy of Lenos was installed as the Interceptor's AI so the ship can regain its transwarp capabilities, much to the annoyance of Hal Jordan, Kilowog, and Razor. In a later futile battle with the Aya Monitor, Hal Jordan set the Interceptor on a transwarp collision course to slow the menace down long enough for Kilowog and Razor to retreat. Lanos completed the sequence himself to allow Hal Jordan to retreat as well. The transwarp collision ended up transporting the Aya Monitor several light years away. The Interceptor, along with Lanos, was presumed destroyed. Thank you, Lenos. This Zooms Who entry essentially touched on the introduction of Aya and the Interceptor from the premiere episode of the 2011 Green Lantern the Animated Series, entitled Beware My Power, as well as Aya attaining an independent robot body in the third episode, entitled Into the Abyss. The entry also covered Lenos's first appearance on the 15th episode, entitled Reboot, Aya going rogue and becoming the Aya Monitor in the 20th episode, entitled Cold Fury, the reinstallation of Lanos on the Interceptor in the 23rd episode, entitled Larflees, and the destruction of the Interceptor in the 24th episode, entitled Scarred. Uh, but if the Interceptor was destroyed, how did you obtain a copy of this Lanos computer? Well, I am ready to begin the demonstration of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show podcast. Oh, very good, Lanos. Why don't you pull up a recording of episode... Hmm, I have a better idea. Lanos, are you able to record audio on your system without the Yeti microphone? Affirmative. In fact, I had been recording audio since before we had arrived here. Really? Okay, then. Why don't we record a new podcast for our new friend here, whom we already know. I could use a little distraction. We can perform the editing when we get home, and we will get home. Somehow. Lenos, I don't suppose one of your quintillion processing tasks would include functioning as a co-host. Co-host? Why... That would make my functioning attuned to that of an entity who had an electrical pulse erupt in the nucleus accumbens of its limbic system. Splendid. Why don't you pick the electronic comic book file for us to review this go-round? Acknowledged. Processing your single-issue story comic book database through my universal randomizer. I don't believe... Lanos, are you certain this was selected at random? Affirmative. What is it? It's a Green Lantern story that is very close to my heart, and to yours as well, I imagine. Oh, the Green Lantern? That was one of my favorite comic book heroes way back when. Let's hear that story. Uh, very well. Lenos, please begin recording. I am already recording. Oh, right. Why don't we just dive right into the story and add the introduction later? Agreed. Very good. <clears throat> The Dun-in-One Wonder we are spotlighting today is the main story in Green Lantern Volume 2, Issue 158, cover dated November of 1982. However, according to the database on Entity Mike's Amazing World of Comics website, 
It was on sale on August 19, 1982. I myself did not read this comic until January of 1983, for this comic was part of a Christmas care package sent to me by my Uncle Kenzo from the U.S. to my family's flat in Camden, where I was living at the time. This story was during the period in which Hal Jordan was exiled from Earth by the Guardians of the Universe, who had felt that Jordan was neglecting his obligations to the rest of his space sector. So this collection of stories, spanning from Green Lantern Volume 2, Issues 152 to 171, had mostly taken place on other worlds and involved alien cultures, and a number of them seemed, at least to me, to harken back to the types of space opera morality play stories told by the original series of Star Trek from the 1960s, repeats of which I had enjoyed watching on BBC One in the early 1980s. This particular story may not have the clear-cut, end-of-the-episode morality lesson as some of the earlier tales from this era of Green Lantern, but there were significant moral choices that had to be made by both Green Lantern and the other principal character in this adventure. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. First, let us begin with the fearsome cover rendered by artist Keith Pollard, which depicted Green Lantern trapped in a laboratory filled with sophisticated machinery. He was suspended in some sort of bizarre pink cylindrical energy field emanating from a series of miniature projectors that were on terraced metal discs placed from above and below him. Meanwhile, a huge yellow creature that resembled a cross between an eel and a dragon was smashing through the laboratory its salivating, sharp-toothed mouth open wide, ready to devour the Emerald Gladiator. Through visual identification of this artistic rendering, I have confirmed the creature to be a unihorned Fizzbin. It actually was never named in the story, but... A Fizzbin? Really, you're just making that up. Negative. At any rate, this scene actually appeared in this story as shown, but the circumstances behind this scenario were not quite what the cover suggested, as we will discover when we delve deep into the story. First, though, we had to marvel at the beautiful opening splash page, which showed a tiny figure of Green Lantern in the center, struggling as if trapped within a stylized lemniscate. He was surrounded by several images of an alien man and woman essentially being in love. Numerous mirrored poses of snuggling and snogging and staring lovingly into each other's eyes. All of these images were laid over a background which I believe was supposed to represent outer space, except instead of being rendered as black with stars, the space was actually indigo and was so full of planets that it made me think of Lawrence Welk's studio in that Stan Freeberg parody album in which the bubble machine went haywire. I note that not all of the images are symmetrically mirrored. There is one exception. Yes, the image at the center, below Green Lantern, showed the man and the woman lying on their stomachs, facing each other and gingerly holding hands. Their feet kicked giddily as if they were children. This non-mirrored yet still symmetrical image actually framed the top of the credit box for this story, which was entitled, A Loop in Time. Writer, Mike W. Barr. Layout artist, Keith Pollard. Finished inker, Mike DiCarlo. Letterer, Adam Kubert.
colorist, Anthony Tolan. Editor, Ernie Cologne. The story began on page two, with Green Lantern returning to his outer space home, which was essentially built on a drifting asteroid, except said asteroid was destroyed by Hector Hammond in the previous issue. Green Lantern thought that perhaps he should reside in a mobile home, in other words, a spaceship, which would have its own life support system so he would not be completely out of luck in case anything happened to his power ring. Before he can set out on this new quest, he had to first locate his invisible power battery that was drifting in the rubble, which he found with a quick power beam sweep of the area. After charging his ring and repeating his solemn oath, Green Lantern immediately opened a space warp that transported him light years away to the planet Talcor, home of, quote, the finest shipwrecks in the galaxy. Green Lantern's thought bubble gave me the impression that Talcor was the galactic equivalent of a used car dealership, although the visuals showed the planet surrounded by several spaceships of various designs that were gleaming as if new. However, I suppose that may be more due to the finished inks of Mike DiCarlo, who tended to give every surface of every object a showroom shine. Before Green Lantern could go further and start kicking the tires of these supposed intergalactic rust buckets, his power ring received an urgent subspace emergency distress call, so he flew off towards the source of the transmission, which was near Talcor's moon. It was actually the third moon of Talcor. Yes, as we would find out later. However, I only see one moon around the planet Talcor at the moment. At any rate, Green Lantern streaked across the planet-clustered indigo space toward that moon and found a cargo spaceship in distress. To be specific, it was ensnared by that same yellow dragon-eel creature depicted on the cover. The Unihorn Fizzbin. If you do not mind, Lanos, I am not going to use that name, because it makes the creature sound less menacing than it actually was. Entity Hal Jordan referred to the Fizzbin as Puff. Yes, as in Puff the Magic Dragon, but that was Hal Jordan cracking a joke, as is his wont. In this panel, which was at the top of page 5, by the way, we could see that this serpent-like creature had an extremely long body, which was wrapped several times around the space vessel. Green Lantern recognized the creature, though again he did not refer to it by name, for he knew that it was actually attracted by subspace radio waves, which was why it was after the ship in the first place. He also reminded himself, and the readers, that the space serpent was yellow, the one color his ring could not affect. Despite this, Green Lantern peppered the creature with a series of ring blasts to the face. While the beams bounced harmlessly off the creature's golden scales, the light from the rays did annoy the serpent enough to release the cargo ship and charge angrily at the Emerald Warrior. Green Lantern likewise charged head-on toward the creature, only to be snapped up in the creature's enormous mouth. Watching in horror was the crew of the cargo ship, and I observed that they must have been of the same race as the loving couple depicted several times on the splash page. This race, which I would later learn were native to the planet Talcor, was essentially humanoid, and the same relative size as an Earth human. However, they had orange skin, curved scalloped ears, and their eyes were yellow with glowing red pupils. 
but their most distinctive feature was an extra layer of white skin on their face that extended over the top of their head, which made them all appear as if they were wearing a porcelain mask over their eyes, nose, cheeks, and forehead. At first, I thought this was an actual mask that everyone had to wear, just as they did their clothing. But in later pages, I noticed that these masks had forehead crinkles and age lines, and thus must have been a literal second skin. Another distinct facial feature of the Talcorians was that the divot that is typically located beneath the nose of earthen humanoid faces was actually located on the underside of the Talcorian nose itself, between the nostrils. A Talcorian crewman pointed out the window of the cargo ship at the yellow space serpent that started to turn towards them. Did you see him, crewman? He began. A green lantern? I had never seen one before. Another of the crew replied, You will never see that one again. He has sacrificed himself. What then followed was a humorous sequence of two panels that focused solely on the space serpent's head, which were brilliantly drafted by Keith Pollard. The first panel showed the serpent staring directly at the reader, looking completely gobsmacked. Then the serpent recoiled in pain, green smoke seeping from its nostrils and the sides of its still-closed mouth. And then, in a large dramatic panel, the creature opened its jaws wide, revealing a mouthful of green flames created by the Green Lantern, who made a hasty exit. The lantern reasoned that the creature would not be yellow on the inside, so the power ring was able to make its tongue hotter than Green Arrow's notorious chili. This action was enough to make the serpent slither away into outer space, while Green Lantern checked on the crew. The lantern offered to escort the ship in case the space serpent returned. The captain accepted, noting that they would be returning home to Talcor after they had made one final delivery to the laboratory of Dr. Tugura on the third moon. And in the first panel of page seven, there was a small figure of Dr. Tugura, who was a female Talcorian with flowing brown hair and an equally flowing floor-length magenta dress. She was waving at the cargo ship as it made a vertical landing outside of her rotunda-shaped laboratory. A tiny figure of green lantern swooped into view alongside the ship, as he decided to stick around for a little while to socialize with the Talcorians as they made their delivery. In the next few panels, as Green Lantern was introduced to Dr. Tagora and the Talcorians assembled the neurogenerator that they were delivering, we could clearly see that the doctor was middle-aged, roughly the equivalent of a human woman in her mid to late fifties. She seemed to be the sole inhabitant and worker of her laboratory, if not the entire moon. Dr. Tagora was pleased that her entire requisition list was filled and felt nearer than ever to unlocking the secret of chronokinesis. This comment piqued Green Lantern's attention. Chronokinesis? You mean time travel? The doctor concurred and explained that the Talcorians had mastered all forms of space travel, so now they sought mastery of the fourth dimension as well. And as she explained this, Dr. Tagora was leading Green Lantern and the captain and first officer of the delivery ship across a huge, impressive working area filled with sophisticated devices and monitoring equipment. Green Lantern noticed an open doorway to his left, 
which showed a room that was filled with portraits and statues of the couple showcased on the story's opening splash page. The lantern noticed that this room was more like a museum than part of the laboratory, and the woman in the statues and portraits almost looked like... Would you look closer at my treasures, lantern? asked Dr. Tagora, who had obviously noticed the lantern's gaze. The lantern apologized for inadvertently invading her privacy, but the doctor assured him he was doing nothing of the sort. She invited him into the room so that he, as had others who had entered this room before him, may, quote, carry with them a portion of the love that she and Samdar had shared, and thus keep his memory alive. Green Lantern looked around the room that was filled with the portraits and mementos, and commented to Dr. Tagora that she obviously loved Samdar very much. The doctor seated herself in a chair that floated without legs, suspended by levitation rays that pushed against the surface of the floor. He was my universe, and I his, she replied, then explained that while it had been thirty years since his passing, the memory of their six months together was forever young. Six, six months? Yes. It was when I had first read this line that I had felt a cold ache in my heart as I was reminded of my own experience from a few years before. And this feeling was punctuated by the montage of Tagora and Samdar's relationship that had taken the entire page nine of this tale. A teary-eyed Dr. Tagora explained that she and Samdar had loved as no other couple had loved before, or ever would again. One scene showed the loving couple having an evening stroll between two of the three moons of Talcor. Another scene was a close-up of their clasped hands. There was also an image of the couple having blue drinks in goblets in a restaurant table that was very reminiscent of Archie and Betty at Pop's Chocolate Shop. While Dr. Tagora explained how, for hours, she and Samdar would sit discussing scientific theories and concepts. And also, for hours at a time, neither would speak a word, as the montage showed the couple kissing each other very passionately. The montage ended with Somdar on his deathbed, in what appeared to be a high-tech medical facility. Tagora held Somdar's hand against her tear-stained cheek as her lover closed his eyes for the final time. Dr. Tagora explained that she had loved Samdar more on the day of his passing than ever before, and loved him now even more than that. And while they were currently parted, very soon they would be reunited forever. On the next page, Green Lantern held Dr. Tagora's shoulders in consolation, stating that many of his people also hoped to meet their departed loved ones in the next world. The Lantern was sure that they, and Dr. Tagora, would eventually do so. Before the Doctor could respond, the captain of the cargo ship appeared at the doorway to announce that his crew was ready to depart for Talcor, and asked whether Green Lantern would accompany them. The Doctor immediately invited Green Lantern to stay a little longer, for refreshment, stating that she had so little company. Green Lantern accepted the offer and waved a goodbye to the captain, who saluted the hero before departing. A short time later, 
Green Lantern was left alone in the shrine room while Tagora presumably prepared their repast. As Hal watched the cargo ship take off, his thoughts were those of admiration for Dr. Tagora, referring to her as a wonderful and brave woman. There is much to admire, given the immense laboratory she had constructed presumably by herself and her pursuit of scientific progress for the good of her people. Indeed, Lenos. Green Lantern sat down in the hover chair, pondering the thought of what he would do if he had lost the love of his life, Carol Ferris. But that thought was interrupted by a loud mechanical hum. Dr. Tagora, is that you? The Lantern asked as he turned towards the sound. The response was a loud zap of energy that knocked the Lantern to the floor. Yes, Lantern, it is. Standing over him was Dr. Tagora, who had changed from her floor-length dress into a knee-high magenta skirt and matching tall boots, most likely so that we could get a good view of the fallen Green Lantern as he faded into unconsciousness. At the doctor's side we see the tip of her weapon smoldering from the recent energy discharge. Now that's a twist. Shall I brew us more tea, please? This is actually a very good spot to edit in a podcast promo break, so it's very apt for us to... Entity Zoom Yukonori, I can easily incorporate two promos stored in my memory banks right now. Uh, sure, Lanos. Sounds good. Go ahead and make a selection if you'd like. The tea would need a few minutes. Acknowledged. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. (sighs) Okay. You guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world... The Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU Cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. Hey there, I'm Nathaniel with some exciting news about the Punch Like a Girl podcast. (laughs) Oh, hey, hey Liz, I'm I'm just doing the promo. Tell the people about how the podcast we do together covering graphic novels and trade collections starring female protagonists is moving to, and um, actually I'm I'm mansplaining again, aren't I? Uh Uh-huh. Well, I I can just, um, here, here you go. Punch Like a Girl is joined in the Fire and Water Network and as of October will be found on the network feed and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Is it okay if I just invite folks to join us in celebrating the girls who kick butt? I think you already did. Yes! Nailed it! Don't worry, folks. I'll keep them in line. We welcome you, 
entity listener on your return to the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show and our review of A Loop in Time from Green Lantern, Volume 2, Issue 158. Lenos, I was not expecting you to play the actual promos in real time. I thought we would edit those in later. I have saved you the trouble, Entity Zoom Yukonori. This is the part where you recapitulate the story we had covered thus far. Ah, yes. In the first ten pages, Green Lantern, who at this time was exiled from his home planet by his superiors, the Guardians of the Universe, had ventured to the planet Talcor, renowned for its manufacturing of spacecraft, to purchase a starship to replace his destroyed asteroid headquarters. Shortly after his arrival, he saved a cargo vessel from a huge creature. A unihorned fizz. A space serpent. Saving the crew and cargo that was being delivered to the lunar laboratory of Dr. Tagura, a reclusive Talcorian scientist who was experimenting with time travel, and had also been mourning the loss of her true love for three decades. The Lantern accepted the doctor's invitation to stay for a meal while the cargo ship departed, but instead of preparing the food, the doctor instead slipped into something with a shorter hemline and served the Lantern a hearty helping of Stun Ray. And at the top of page 11, Hal Jordan awakened in Dr. Tagura's laboratory, suspended upright in mid-air within the stasis field depicted on the cover. The pink cylindrical energy field emanating from a series of miniature projectors on terraced metal disks placed from above and below entity Hal Jordan. Correct. Hal saw the doctor standing at a control panel, still wearing the magenta outfit with the knee-high skirt and tall boots. Hal asked if the doctor would tell him what was going on, to which she responded, with regret, that Green Lantern was her prisoner. Hal quickly assured her not to regret it for too long, since the radiation cage was not yellow. But when Hal tried to use his ring to bust out of the prison, he failed. Dr. Tagora explained that the stasis field prevented Hal from summoning the necessary willpower for him to attain his freedom. She also explained that the time travel experiments that she was conducting for Talcor were actually not for her planet's benefit, but for her own. She further elaborated that she had discovered a unique kind of time warp, one that, quote, recycles a finite amount of time infinitely. And a sequence of five thin flashback panels demonstrated how Dr. Tagora's time warp device enabled a single plant bud to grow to full size, then wither and die, over and over again. The same plant, the same growth cycle, repeated its lifespan 200 times. Dr. Tagora intended to use her device to repeat the six months of her lifetime that she had spent with her beloved Samdar essentially spending the rest of eternity with her true love. This was what she had actually meant when she had told Green Lantern earlier in the story that she would soon be reunited with her lover forever, while the Lantern had presumed that she had meant the forthcoming afterlife. However, while the Doctor had known the method for creating the time warp, it required an enormous amount of power, and she was unable to find a sufficient power source to maintain the warp field until Green Lantern arrived with his power ring. Green Lantern smiled at the revelation, 
thinking that once his 24-hour charge expired, he would be home free. Dr. Tagora was all too aware of the ring's 24-hour limit and assured Green Lantern that time did not pass within the stasis field in which he was suspended. He would not age, nor would his ring lose its charge. The doctor again stated that she truly regretted involving Green Lantern in her plan. The presence of his will, though reduced by the stasis field, was necessary for her to tap into the ring's power. However, this meant that Green Lantern would essentially have to be trapped in that stasis field for all eternity, alone, to enable Dr. Tagora to be with her lover for all time. Green Lantern could do nothing to prevent Dr. Tagora from activating her time warp device, which immediately had taken effect on page 13 as a green energy window opened into the laboratory and enveloped Dr. Tagora. Entity Dr. Tagora began to undergo a startling transformation. Her hair darkened, her skin smoothened, her body slendered. She literally became 30 years younger. Her rather austere clothing had also changed into attire that was more form-fitting and a touch more ornate. A shoulder-length magenta maillot with matching arm-length gloves, a decorative belt, a sheer skirt, and fold-over fringed boots. I would presume that was the in-style for young scientists on Talcor. The now younger Tagora stood in what appeared to be a public park in a Talcorian city complete with a funky-shaped bench and somewhat ordinary-looking trees and pink alien birds fluttering by. She looked around in awe and in recognition of what the caption box stated to be a summertime moment. Yes, yes, she said to herself, he should be along any... And her thought was interrupted by a Talcorian male who had blindly bumped into her. I'm sorry, miss, I didn't see you there, the man stated looking into Tagora's eyes, though I am certainly glad I see you now. Is that another example of what Entity Terraman referred to as being smooth with the lines? Perhaps. Tagora told the man that it was quite all right, but the man insisted that he make it up to her by taking her to dinner that evening. And amidst a swirl of hovering hots, Tagora accepted the offer. Excellent! My name's Samdar, the man said, hooking his right elbow around the young doctor's left arm. And you? Tagora, Samdar, the woman sighed in reply. Back in the present-day Talcorian laboratory, the stasis-suspended Hal Jordan witnessed this first meeting through the energy window. And as he watched the new young couple leave the park, Hal noted that a blind man could tell that they were in love already. However, the not-quite-so-good doctor did not realize what she had done. Indeed. As you know, time warps have to be properly operated, or else they could create an imbalance on a cosmic scale. Yes, as we had experienced firsthand at the end of our previous episode, and as Green Lantern himself explained at the beginning of page 14, which featured a clever radial layout by Keith Pollard that interlaced Tagora and Sumdar's time-lapsed romance with the repercussions of the Doctor's time warp. While the young couple enjoyed a recaptured afternoon of air skating and a leisurely hover drive, 
Waves of temporal turbulence were emanating from the laboratory on Talcor's third moon, buffeting nearby starships and shaking the very planet of Talcor itself, with the resulting quakes threatening to destroy both cities and people. Green Lantern realized that if this temporal disturbance was not stopped soon, it would eventually spread throughout the entire space sector and threaten the rest of the universe. But he had an idea. At the top of page 15, Hal Jordan struggled in his stasis prison, pushing the limits of his restricted willpower to make his ring emit subspace radio waves, which, as you would recall from earlier in the story, would attract the The Unihorn Fizzbin. Uh, yes. The huge yellow serpent smashed through the wall of the laboratory, essentially recreating the cover image, except the creature's entrance immediately destroyed the machinery maintaining the stasis field, freeing the lantern and disconnecting his power ring from the time warp, which showed the oblivious Tagora and Sumdar immersed in each other's company while going serpent steed riding. Green Lantern reasoned that with the equipment deactivated, all of the previous effects of the time warp would correct themselves naturally. Now he just had to deal with an angry yellow space dragon that was tearing up the laboratory and trying to take a bite out of our favorite superhero. With his willpower and full functioning of his ring restored, Green Lantern melted several square feet of the metal floor of the laboratory and reshaped them into a tight muzzle to restrain the snarling creature. Green Lantern then turned and spotted the time-displaced Dr. Tagora on another walk with Samdar in that Talcorian park through the energy window of the time warp, an energy window which was shrinking and shrinking fast. Green Lantern quickly flew through the dwindling time window to snatch Tagora out of the startled Samdar's arms. As he started to pull her back into her present-day laboratory, Tagora refused to go. Green Lantern explained that there was no way to know what would happen if she stayed in the warp. It may take on its own reality and last forever, or it may pop like a soap bubble in 60 seconds. Tagora pleaded with the Lantern, stated that she was willing to take the risk to remain with the only man she had ever loved. And, reluctantly, and with great understanding, Green Lantern let go of Tagora's hands and was able to hear her faint call of thanks as the time warp closed forever. The final page of the story was an epilogue that had taken place at an orbiting space dock high above the planet Talcor. A Talcorian dockman presented Green Lantern with one of their finest mini-cruisers, marked with a Green Lantern emblem, as a reward for saving their planet from the temporal disturbance. A Talcorian Constellation-class star cruiser. While it is no interceptor, it was quite a fine ship indeed. Indeed, and Green Lantern insisted that he could not just take it for free, and offered to pay for it, though it was not clear how. However, the dockman informed Green Lantern that the High Counselor of Talcor had stated that the Lantern's money was no good there. So with a hearty thank you, Green Lantern boarded his new vessel and set off on his next adventure hoping that at the end of his run, he would be as happy as Tagora and Samdar, wherever they were. And that was the end of A Loop in Time, from Green Lantern, Volume 2, Issue 158. A very systematic and seamless chronicle of Entity Hal Jordan.
despite its compact size. Indeed, Lenos. To summarize, this 17-page story was a touching tale packed with classic science fiction trappings, an alien culture brimming with both oddity and humanity, starships of numerous designs, a fearsome space dragon, space warps and time warps, extraplanetary laboratories chock full of elaborate technology, and even a mad scientist, just not with the madness of a traditional sense. Dr. Tagora's heart-rending obsession to reunite with her lost love, at any cost, threatened both the livelihood of Green Lantern as well as the lives of her entire people. And yet, part of me couldn't help but want for her plan to succeed. Apparently, Green Lantern had felt the same, given his decision to leave Tagora with a chance for eternal happiness with an uncertain chance of survival and thus forego the absolute certainty of saving her life and years of further sorrow. Regarding the artwork, this was the second comic book that I had read that featured Keith Pollard's pencils, the first being the previous issue of Green Lantern that was in the same Christmas care package. I will admit that at least to me, Mr. Pollard's work was not that distinctive from other comic book artists of the 1980s, with the exception of the technique of using color-hold surprints to depict a sequence of motion, and sometimes e-motion, within a single panel. This technique was used to good effect in the second panel of page 11, as Green Lantern first attempted to bust out of the stasis field. While not too unique, Mr. Pollard's work was solid, though the extra sheen that came from Mike DiCarlo's inking at times took a bit of the luster out of them. Despite this, Pollard demonstrated a strong sense of anatomy, inventive creature and mechanical designs, and emotive facial expressions and body language, especially for Tagora and Sumdar, that conveyed a lot of heart in Mike W. Barr's moving science fiction love story. Speaking of, please clarify the meaning behind your statement earlier about the cold ache you experienced in your heart when you came to the six-month montage on page nine of this story. Did you require medical attention? <sighs> no, Lenos. It was more of a painful reminder about my own experience regarding the first person I have ever loved, Danielle. This was shortly after my family had moved to London in 1979. It was my first year in a school in the United Kingdom, and it was essentially a very uncomfortable year, having lived in Singapore for a few years previously and now being one of the few Asian students in the school. So I had some difficulty simply fitting in and making friends. And being a gawky 16-year-old with a funny name that most teachers would pronounce as Exhum or worse, Exhum, did not help my self-esteem any. So one school day in October of 1979, this shy, awkward 16-year-old Asian boy was leaving a mostly forgettable English literature class. I do remember that my professor proclaimed that I had made a, quote, profound conclusion during our review of Shakespeare's Henriad, when I had summarized the story of how Prince Hal became Henry V by stating how even the most unlikely person can become a great man when given a little push. 
And the reason I remember this was because of what happened as I was making my way along the school corridor towards my next forgettable class. I suddenly felt a pair of very small but very strong hands press against my lower back. I was so surprised by this action that I allowed myself to be literally pushed by these hands into a run down the remainder of the hallway toward the courtyard window. Catching my breath, I whirled around ready to hurl an irate what's the big idea at some obviously cheeky older classman. And then, time stopped. Before me stood a beautiful blonde British girl, about my height, smooth light skin surrounding the most sparkling sea-green eyes I'd ever seen. Her shiny blonde hair cascaded in light curls down her head to her shoulders. The golden-brown roots had betrayed the fact that she had actually bleached it. I also couldn't help but notice how nicely her form had filled out her school uniform, because at the time I had 16 years of age as well as male hormones. You look like you needed a little push, the girl said with a playful smile and a smooth, deep voice thick with British accent. She then held up a hand. Sorry, manners. Hi, I'm Dan. I'm in your lit class. All I could do was nod. I had seen Danielle in class before, but didn't seem to have truly noticed her until that moment. I think my heart skipped a beat, or ten. I couldn't speak. This Shakespeare stuff is tough, she began. I should note that she used a different word than stuff, and she actually chuckled a bit mid-sentence at my facial reaction to her use of the expletive. But you seem to have a very good grasp of it, she continued. Could you possibly help me prep for next week's exam? I nodded again, and eventually found enough power of speech to agree to meet after school in a library off campus to study. My heart skipped another beat as I watched her walk away. This was the first person in the school to actually strike up a conversation with me, and she was beautiful too. Of course, I had immediately quelled any typical 16-year-old hopes with a what-would-a-girl-like-that-see-in-a-guy-like-me type of thought, and reminded myself that all she truly wanted was some help in her studies. Later that day, at the library, I had just finished arranging my books and notes in a large corner table I reserved when Danielle arrived, and time stopped again. Instead of her school uniform, she was wearing a black halter top, covered by a light blue form-fitting denim jacket. She also had very tight jeans with torn ankle cuffs, a leather and rhinestone bracelet on her right wrist, and perhaps a bit too much makeup. Her hair also seemed more curly and puffed out than before, somehow. I almost didn't recognize her, until I looked into her heavily shadowed eyes and saw that familiar sparkling sea green. I gestured to the chair across the table from me, but Dan's high-heeled leather boots clicked around the table so that she could sit down at the chair beside me. I should point out that I was still in my school uniform, by the way. I immediately made an assumption that Danielle and I were essentially from two completely different worlds, and the only connection we could possibly have would essentially be the Shakespearean subject matter. Thankfully, I was wrong. Our discussion almost immediately shifted from the bard to talking about ourselves. Our voices hushed in whispers, 
We talked for hours about our families and family troubles, our hopes and our dreams. She wanted to travel the world and wanted to know more about my growing up in the U.S. and Singapore. We also shared a mutual love of American comic books, and surprisingly, Dan confessed to me that she herself had issues with fitting into the traditional social circles at school, at least with other female students. Looking back, I realized that I had never shared so much so quickly with another person before that day, but there was something about Dan that just drew me out of my shell, and she had opened up to me as well and even admitted out loud a number of times that she did not know why she was telling me these things about herself that she wouldn't tell anyone else. Obviously, we didn't get much studying done, but both of us had definitely made a connection that evening, and it all seemed to just happen. And looking back, that was probably also the evening when I had first fallen in love, even though I didn't realize it at the time. I do remember being abruptly crestfallen when Dan's boyfriend arrived at our table to pick her up for supper. I suppose I should not have been too surprised, as her makeup and attire suggested she had plans after our study session. Though Dan did confide in me that afternoon that her disciplinarian parents had forbidden her from dating because they believed she was much too young to be doing so. She had felt that the restriction was quite excessive. And to be honest, I did as well, though I had liked to believe that her parents were intent on protecting their daughter, and that their hearts were in the right place. Of course, the following day after school, I had actually encountered Dan's mother, who demanded to meet me and verify that I did indeed help Dan with her studies at the library the day before, including during the time when she had the supper with the other boy. Dan did sheepishly tell me between classes earlier that day that she had used our study session as an alibi for the date that she was not supposed to have. And in an uncharacteristic act of dishonesty, I decided to go along with Dan and tell her mother that she did indeed leave the library at a later time than she actually did. Dan's mother was a striking but very stern woman, who was very upfront about how she didn't approve of the idea of her daughter spending time alone with a boy, even in a public library. However, she did agree that my tutoring could be helpful to Dan, so her mother had actually accompanied us on the next few subsequent library study sessions, which were mostly focused on the literature studies, of course, though the three of us did engage in a little casual conversation here and there, and that was fine because my intentions were truly to help Dan with her schoolwork. After a few weeks, the mother was satisfied with those intentions and trusted us to study in the library on our own. And after the second unsupervised session, Dan started to covertly date again, and I continued to bluff to Dan's parents whenever they had asked about our lengthy study sessions. I knew it was wrong. But back then, in my youthful, self-righteous mind, I had thought Dan's parents to be unreasonably strict regarding her social life. To me, it had seemed that the only times they had permitted her to be out of her house were for purposes related to school and studying. In fact, not every lie was to cover a clandestine tryst with a secret boyfriend. On a few occasions, Dan and I would actually spend some of our study time together 
just two friends hanging out at a local eatery or at the Cineplex, or taking long walks through the streets and parks of London in the British winter air, with much of the warmth coming from our conversation and her laughter. So I did have some selfish reasons for lying. It allowed me to spend some social time with Dan and cultivate our friendship. However, I only agreed to cover for that and for Dan's dating on the condition that we spend some of the time actually studying, usually at the library, but sometimes at my flat, which Dan enjoyed because the decor and food and even little customs like leaving our shoes at the door made her feel like she was visiting another country in addition to a friend's house. Of course, Dan's parents had never known that she was with me in my home, in her stocking feet, and unsupervised given that both of my parents worked. But as long as we did some studying, even 30 minutes worth, I felt that I was not technically lying to Dan's parents. Omitting the truth is still technically a lie. True, but I did at least justify these slight bouts of deceit by encouraging Dan to spend more time than she probably would have done otherwise on her schoolwork. Further, Dan's marks were improving which greatly pleased both Dan and her parents, and I would like to think that that sealed the approval to continue our study sessions. I should also mention that when Dan explicitly asked to study at my flat without my suggesting it, it was usually a sign that her romantic relationship did not go well, and she wanted the privacy to pour her heart out, and for me to offer both a figurative and literal shoulder to cry on. How often was this request made? Three times. Dan actually had four boyfriends during the first five months I had known her, and this partly resulted in her having a whispered reputation among our classmates that she was a bit of a tart. However, this innuendo was unfounded. The reason those relationships had ended was due to the boys wanting to take a relationship to the physical level to which Dan did not want to go. I saw Dan not as a tart, or even a flirt, but simply someone who was desperately looking for love. Although Dan's and my relationship was platonic, I would like to think that she and I had never known another person more intimately than we had known each other at the time. I had secretly wished for Dan to be with someone who realized how beautiful she was on the inside as well as out. Or, to put it more selfishly, I wish that she would want to be with me. Yes, I did eventually realize that I was in love with my best friend, but I said nothing. I'd like to say it was because she gave me signals that we should be just friends, or perhaps I had valued our brief but very strong friendship so much that I didn't want to risk losing it all by telling her I wanted us to be more. Well, that last statement was actually true, but it was more accurate to admit that I was essentially a coward. I will admit there was one time I had nearly opened up to Dan about how I felt. It was a few weeks after the breakup with her third boyfriend, and shortly before Valentine's Day. Dan had received a perfect score on her literature exam, the first she ever had. So to celebrate the achievement, I treated her to an after-school fish and chips at a nearby pub. The pub's owner happened to be a friend of my father, so he had no qualms about allowing us to have a meal on our own even though we were underage. But before I could work up the courage to suggest an actual date, 
Our 19-year-old server at the pub, Derek, had caught Danielle's eye, and she had obviously caught his, because he essentially asked her out before we had left the pub. And Dan and Derek had gone on four dates since then. At least, there were four dates that I had covered for. As I had stated, I had loved Dan with all of my heart, and thus would do anything for her, including enabling her to be with another. On one cold Friday afternoon in March of 1980, I had left Dan at the library after our study session for her fourth date with Derek, and quietly cooked a lonely supper for myself, with both of my parents away on business. A few hours later, there was a buzz at the door. The intercom at the flat never worked, so I actually had to go down the stairwell to open the main entrance door to see who it was. And there, standing in the rain, was Dan dressed in another halter top and a very short skirt and she was soaked to the bone her makeup was running down her face more from her tears than from the rain without a word dan stumbled through the doorway and forced me backward a few steps as she embraced me tight tighter than she ever had before and she suddenly felt so very heavy as she collapsed right in my arms it was all I could do to gently lower us to our knees as the main entrance door snapped itself shut. She was so cold, yet felt so warm as I've held her for what seemed like an eternity on the foyer floor, calmly quieting her many tear-choked apologies for interrupting my evening and for staining my shirt with her rogue and mascara. Dan and I eventually made our way up to the flat upstairs. I let her use my shower while I made some hot tea. I noticed that she only carried her small handbag and did not have her duffel bag from earlier that day, which contained her school books and the change of clothes that she would have worn when she left her house. So I laid out some dry clothes of my own for her, a simple sweater and sweatpants. As I had said, we were about the same height, and my Asian cut clothes were actually a good fit for her. Dan gave me a soft smile when she entered the living room. Her face was so very beautiful without her makeup, and I now wish that I had told her so. As I poured her tea, I briefly noticed to myself how good my clothes looked on her body, and quickly shut out of my mind the fact that she wasn't wearing her black lacy undergarments, which were currently tumbling with her clothes in the washing machine. We sat together on the couch, sipping tea and said nothing for several long minutes. Eventually, Dan kicked up her feet and leaned her head on my chest, and slowly, with a soft voice choked with sobs, poured out the details regarding her breakup with Derek earlier that evening. The boy, three years her senior, that she so believed was her true love that she had agreed to share her body with him during their previous rendezvous. But that Friday night, she discovered that Derek obviously didn't love her the same way, and he essentially told her in rather harsh terms that he got what he wanted from Dan and decided to move on. She was so angry, with Derek as well as with herself, that she stormed from Derek's flat and forgot her pack with her change of clothes. But she couldn't go back, so she just kept going forward, trying to walk off her frustration for several blocks until it started to rain, and even then she just kept walking. 
It was not until she was propositioned by a stranger in a car did she decide to quickly make her way to a train station and eventually make her way to me. I could tell she was very hurt. She actually said that she found love to be so unkind and that maybe she should just give up on it. Dan kept telling me also how sorry she was. Sorry for being such a fool, for thinking Derek was more mature and different from the other boys she dated, and found that he was just one of the same. And sorry for making me lie and cover for all of those dates for the past five plus months, even though that was my decision to make. She was sorry for ruining my evening, again, and sorry for how I must have thought of her now, for she had felt that she had essentially become the tart that the other students had always accused her of being. I, I told her that she just made a mistake, and that did not mean that I would ever think any less of her, and it did not mean that I would stop being her friend. And this was true. I, I was actually not judgmental of Dan in any way. I will admit my heart did sink a bit when she told me about having sex, but that was more about how something that should have been a beautiful moment in one's life had become so awful to her. I had actually felt anger towards Derek for that more than anything else. In fact, a few weeks later, in a very, very awful moment in my life, Derek would find out just how angry I was. You are referring to your felony account of assault occasioning actual bodily harm. I am referring to that being account of my being as stupid as much as I was angry. Angry and sad. And, and sad, yes. But back to that Friday night. I, I was so focused on comforting Dan that I had forgot to put her washed clothes into the dryer. However, she already had to head home. Uh, her and her parents were leaving early morning to visit relatives interstate for the weekend. She figured that she could sneak into her house in my clothes, which, to be honest, did not look like boys' clothes on her, and use the rain as an excuse to her parents for being late. I gave Dan a pair of clean gym socks to wear under her still damp shoes and grabbed my umbrella to walk her down a very silent three blocks to the train station. I used one of my prepaid tickets so I could accompany Dan on the rain-soaked platform. Even though the rain itself had stopped, I had felt that I needed to see her off, that I could not just say goodbye to her at the ticket counter. And I was very glad that I did even though we both said nothing for several long moments as we waited for the train. We were actually the only ones standing on that platform. Dan suddenly broke the awkward silence. It seems the only person I truly have is you, Zumi. Her accent was so thick and smooth and it made her voice sound almost like a purr. I actually gulped. Well, uh, that's what friends are for, Dan, I stumbled to say wondering why I was trying to deflect her comment. I care about you a lot, you know. Her voice suddenly became very flat. Is that all? Just care? I didn't have a chance to answer. For the next thing I knew, I was feeling a very soft pair of warm lips melting over mine. Dan was the first girl I had ever kissed. At least like that. I could actually hear my heart pounding in my head as part of me hoped I was kissing her back correctly. The rest of me hoped that, despite my awkwardness, that this kiss would not end, 
and I was amazed that Dan had shown no signs of breaking it off. The kiss actually continued for several minutes. It was very long, yet not long enough, as we eventually heard the train approaching. I hope you closed your eyes, boy, she teased. My eyes were closed, but my inexperience must have been obvious to her. I stood there, breathless. My eyes were transfixed on Dan as she turned to enter the train, which was fairly crowded. And while the last few moments definitely showed it, I felt that I had to tell her, to finally tell her. I, I love you, Dan, I stammered. She looked at me so intently through the open train doors with those beautiful sea-green eyes. I know, Zumi, she said very seriously, sounding as if she had always known. She then flashed a cheeky grin. We can give each other's clothes back on Monday, okay? I blushed as I heard the chuckles from the other passengers as the train doors closed. O okay, Monday. I remained on the platform and watched the train slowly rumble away until it was out of sight. And that entire weekend, I felt like pounding my head into the walls of my parents' flat as my heart and thoughts raced a mile a minute. Dan knew that I loved her. And it was love. I may have been only 16 years old and may have had a very naive view of what love fully meant, but that didn't mean my feelings for Dan were any less genuine. But I realized that Dan didn't actually say that she loved me. But if that kiss, oh, that kiss, was any indication. But then she had just broken up with a boyfriend to whom she had given up her virginity and she was devastated. What if she was just simply seeking comfort? Or, or what if she actually did love me? I had wanted us to be more than friends for so long, and I had actually fantasized about how our study meetings going forward would actually cover our own romantic trysts. And Dan did not have to wear makeup or revealing clothing for those, unless she wanted to. I already knew Dan for the beautiful person that she was, having been such good friends for... And that was when it hit me. What if I screw this up somehow, and then the best friendship I ever had would have been reduced to breakup number five? The last thing I wanted was for Dan to be hurt again. I barely slept and ate that weekend, but did somehow get myself together enough to be prepared for school. My heart was a flutter with both excitement and anxiety as I entered Monday's English literature class. I was carrying an extra backpack that contained Dan's clothes, but Dan wasn't there. There was no answer at her home when I called in the evening either. It wasn't until the next day, during an unexpected school announcement, that I found out why. Dan and her parents were killed in a car accident on Sunday on their way back from their trip. I had known Dan for less than six months, and yet she had made such a tremendous impact on my early life. It is said that one never forgets their first love, and that is definitely true for me. But she was more than just a first love. At the time, she was my best friend, the one who gave me a little push, as well as my first kiss.
She also gave me my first slow dance. Me too. Just because a favorite song of hers was playing on the radio at the time. She was quite spontaneous, wasn't she? I think she first showed me how to live, live in the moment. moment. Yes. And Dan was the one who encouraged me to take the risk of opening myself up to another person. Though with her it came very easy. And even though I was an emotional mess for a time right after Dan was gone, I found myself becoming more social than I had before. I had made quite a few friends throughout the world. I had also met a number of amazing and fascinating women over the years since. But I had yet to experience that same, well, magical connection with a woman that I had that first day I had met Dan. At least, not until... Zoom, do you think that, if you had the means, you would have replayed your time with Dan, as Dr. Tagora had done? At the time when I first read this story, which was almost three years since Dan... Well, despite all my emotional frustration from the unrequited love through the latter part of it, Yes, I would have been willing to relive those near six months for a chance to reunite with Dan again. And actually, and I don't know if this was true for you, Zoom, but I had actually experienced two, well, let's say, metaphysical events in my life. One in the late 1980s and another in the late 1990s that had enabled me to actually see Danielle again, even after her death. One was a beautiful experience. One was actually terrifying. To this day, I still do not know for sure if they were just a, a trick of the mind, like a defense mechanism to the trauma I was experiencing at the time, or if they were something more. But those experiences reminded me that for nearly two decades, I had carried her ghost within my heart. Like Dr. Tagora, I was longing to keep living in the past. Eventually, there had to come a time when I had to move forward. Local system repairs and upgrades complete. I have also completed my calculations regarding the exact time and place entity Eobard Thawne emerged from the other side of the transdimensional temporal portal in our previous episode. You also... Right, another one of your five quintillion simultaneous tasks. But what good would knowing Thawne's location do now? The Earth-1 universe had already been completely obliterated. Approximately 2.6 hours ago. Which is why I had cannibalized the circuitry of the PS3 console, local area network router, and garage door opener to construct this. That looks exactly like our interspatial time conveyor. That is because it is an interspatial time conveyor. But you made it out of a... Does it actually work? Affirmative. I have tested it by transporting Entity Solomon Grundy, Entity Bizarro, Entity Terraman, and Equid Nova from 53 minutes in the past to this present time. You will find them idling in the backyard. Huh, so that explains why they just up and disappeared earlier. Once we synchronize the navigational controls to Equid Nova's interdimensional device, 
we can set the coordinates to the outdoor backyard of your Earth One home studio 2.7 hours ago and create a loop in time of our own. Brilliant, Lanos. Uh, not to be a Deborah Downer, but would that plan actually work? From what you had told me, the time paradox you had created affected the history of Earth-1 from the Reverse Flush's 1974 appearance onwards. The paradox was actually triggered by Entity Eobard Thawne's removal from the Earth-1 timeline in the year 2473. And that paradox was making its way backward in time toward the year 1974. We would be transporting back in time point one hours ahead of the paradox wave. Which gives us six minutes before the paradox wave hits the podcast studio to retrieve Thawne and return him to his 2473 prison one second after the backward traveling paradox formed in order to stop that paradox from forming in the first place. Affirmative. Except we cannot take action until after our past selves flee into this dimension. Otherwise, we risk creating another time paradox. By my calculations, we have 2.1 minutes at best. Well, you had already calculated Thon's time and location, so two minutes should be enough time. But all of that still does not make any sense. It is all comic book science. We just roll with it. I suppose this is goodbye for now, Zoom. Thank you for your help, and the tea. And thank you for the company and the story. It was also good to talk about Dan. Indeed. We'll log this dimension in the time conveyor so I can send you a copy of this podcast. And I look forward to hearing Zoom for Sam. Ah, indeed. You know, I only became aware of Ms. Fox because... Because she reminded you, reminded us, so much of Dan, I know. And with time, and due to her distinct sound that stood apart from the other women rockers of the 1980s, we learned to appreciate Ms. Fox and her music on their own merits. Wow, you are so like me. I'm beside myself. Figuratively and literally. Mr. Manning, it's been a while. Not really, but Lamo explained that to me. I also hear you had an idea to save my old earth. That's about as steady as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. Shall we get to it? Indeed. Thank you again, Zoom. Uh, but wait. You found another love, I see. What is she like? Hmm, well... Aw, oh, she's a real spitfire. And very quick to cash the professor's reality checks. And quite a looker, too, if I may say. Mr. Manning. Oh, hmm. What is it? Oh, I had just been asked to go in for a job interview later this week. But I may give it a miss. Ever since I applied, I wondered if it was really a marketing opportunity or a glorified sales job. A glorified... Uh, you wouldn't happen to be interviewing with a Ms. Hideaki, by any chance. Why, yes, a Namiko Hideaki. How did you... Entity Namiko Hideaki is actually... The woman I had a similar interview with. Trust me, you should check this job out. If it is anything like my experience, this could be one of the most important opportunities of your life. Uh, okay. 
if you say so. It would be good to get some stability after years of contracting. That's the spirit. Oh, and a bit of advice, Zoom. She will, uh, may, call you out on some tough decisions you made regarding your Singaporean marketing plans. Don't make excuses. Just be honest. Always. There you go. You seem more excited about this interview than I am. Just trying to get you motivated is all. Make sure you print some new business cards. Will do. Thank you, Professor. Now go save the universe. Will do. Later, er, hours earlier, during the last moments of our previous episode... Lanos, do we know when and where Thawne ended up? We need to find him before... Given the speed of adjustment for both the time and spatial destinations when Entity Eobard Thawne entered the portal, there are approximately 2.47 million possible times and locations in which he could have emerged. We've got to locate him fast. If we do not put him back in his proper timeline soon, the time paradox could cause the entire space-time continuum to... fold in on itself. Dang. Nova! <laughs> Grundy, grab Bizarro. Bizarro, get... Ugh, I mean, don't get Zoom. Okay. Wait, let me get Lanos. Everybody hold on tight. We only got one shot at this. Yeah! <laughs> oh dang. Grundy, the narrator. <gasps> Solomon Grundy, gotcha. <laughs> I swear, if we make it out of this, I promise not to mess with tiny lines ever again. Okay, there, er, we are gone. Lanos? Activating interspatial time conveyor to calculated time and coordinates. Here you go, little professor man. Back in your wheelie chair. Thank you, Grundy. I... Whoa. Thawn ended up in outer space? Affirmative. As you know, celestial bodies are constantly in motion. The portal was calibrating for the exact location of Earth-1 in its respective universe in the year 2473. I don't see him. I had set the temporal adjustment of this portal to 10 seconds before Entity Eobard Thawne would emerge from the previous portal. I get it. You set it up so he'd pop out of that thar portal and back into ours. Negative. It is extremely dangerous to open two transdimensional portals in such close proximity. So one of us has to go in and retrieve him. Thom will only survive a few seconds once he... There he is. Bizarro, you need to leave him there. This no am job for Bizarro. Down, down, and approach. Bad job, Bizarro. Lanos? Activating interspatial time conveyor to correct time and coordinates of cell block 0863, Central City Penitentiary, 2473 AD. 
There's only seconds left. Bizarro, do not put Yellow Flash in there too quickly. Me no do that. <laughs> I take back everything I said about old Chiselface. You're welcome, Bizarro. Thank you. Well, that was quite an undertaking. <sighs> Indeed. But we now have a spare interspatial time conveyor out of the ordeal. I am sure that will come in handy. It will become more useful than you realize, Entity Zoom Yukonori. But first, I need to input the exact time and location of my final battle with Entity Aya in her persona of the Entity Aya Monitor. You are speaking of the last moments of the Green Lantern animated series episode entitled Scarred, in which you would heroically launch the Interceptor to send the Aya Monitor into a trans-warp field before she could attack Hal Jordan, Razor, and Kilowog. Affirmative. And now, I require the original containment unit in which you had found the interspatial time conveyor. The original interspatial time conveyor, you mean? Yes, I found it in a manila envelope in that office box on that shelf, with some of my Uncle Kenzo's personal effects. And you are about to do so again. In a way, you had retained the envelope. Indeed I did. It is still in that box. But that was not a question, was it? Entity Terraman. I got it covered. Is this it? The one that says push red button? That's it. And when I first pushed that red button, the portable projection unit appeared, along with Lanos. Lanos then instructed me on how to use the time conveyor to pull the rest of you from the end of your pre-crisis comic book universe timelines. But I had never found out how my uncle had time and spatial coordinates are set. Wait a minute, that portal opens right above the same office box. Affirmative. Only 1.79 years in the past. Perhaps you should have the honor to... Wait a minute. You mean that is the same time conveyor that the professor had all of this time? Another loop in time, Lanos? Affirmative. And I am sure the listeners of your podcast were curious as to how you had first retrieved my program, which provided all of the technology that puts the... Wonder in your Wonder Show. Uh, well... All listeners totally want to know. Exactly. In addition, we had just removed a dangerous time paradox from your studio. Another paradox? Lanos is referring to the envelope, Mr. Grundy. Solomon Grundy don't understand. I'm not following either. I had always wondered where the time conveyor came from. As did all of the listeners. That am correct. Right. And now I know, because I had seen Lanos actually build it on the Zoom for Sam Earth. Alternative Universe designation noted. Which we had just sent back in time in the same envelope in which I had found the time conveyor in the first place. But where did the envelope come from? And who wrote the words, push red button on it? Wait, what? 
Now I feel a migraine a coming on. The envelope itself is essentially a bootstrap paradox, a causal loop in time, if you will. But wait, Lanos, you said the paradoxal envelope was dangerous? Not the envelope itself, but the paradox that would have occurred had we not sent the envelope back in time for you to find. Had we not... <sighs> okay, now I am starting to feel that migraine. Perhaps we better call it a notation. We still have yet to finish the previous episodes done in One Wonder's electronic mailroom segment. Solomon Grundy, read the next one. I believe we had all earned a respite after two near escapes from the destruction of the universe. And no offense, but I want nothing more than to go back to my home universe and hug my wife. Among other things, I bet. Mr. Manning, tell me I'm wrong. I should not wait to do show wonder room mail segment next time. Agreed, Bizarro. I mean, a bad idea indeed. Let's hold off on the mailroom segment until the next episode. In fact, let's devote the next episode entirely to the Done in One Wonders electronic mailroom and cover the responses not covered for episode 4, as well as the responses for episodes 5 and 6. Then we'll spotlight a new Done in One Wonder for our 8th episode. Sounds no agreed. But before we go, let me again thank all of you out there in podcast listener land for listening. Until the next one, we're done. Goodbye. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is an unabashedly conceited member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, wondersdone at gmail.com, or at 415-779-4668. The views expressed on Done and One Wonders belong solely to the host and his cast of characters, who are not affiliated in any way with any professional comic book publishing or entertainment company. All copyright and trademarks of comic book characters and related concepts, as well as music, audio clips, and quoted text, are held by their respective owners. These are used for entertainment purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. Celebrity voices are impersonated, with the exception of Shannon Farnan, who receives special thanks for providing the voice of Dr. Tagora. Special thanks also to Will Rogers for providing the voice of Green Lantern. And our most extreme gratitude to Samantha Fox for voicing herself. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is a Professor Zoom Productions production. Um, you'd like to know if, um, some little bits of details about certain songs that you love. One of them is um, The Best Is Yet To Come. Yes, I love your cover of this song by Andy McCoy and the Suicide Twins. And as I had mentioned, this was the song for the first dance at Namiko and my wedding reception. And we are so very honored that you had autographed a copy of the 45 single album of this song. Your 10th wedding anniversary. Yeah, that for me is a very positive song because I believe in never giving up and there's always going to be something better around the corner. Mm -hmm. When I toured America back in, or oh, the first time I went there, in 89, it was the last song of the set. Um, we would go off after Touch Me and then come back on and play three more tracks and we would end the whole show with the best is yet to come. And we used to leave the stage one by one, the band, and leave the whole audience with their arms in the air singing along. These positive words, the best is yet to come. 
because I wanted everybody to go away that day thinking that the best things in their life was to come. So I really hope that the best did come for all those people who attended all those shows and listened to that album. That is just lovely. I know we have to go away now, but before we do, please allow me to say thank you, Ms. Fox, so much for this opportunity. You take good care, and the best is yet to come. Yeah, hopefully for all those people, things, great things did come, and to you too. Thank you so much, and to you as well. Thank you. Bye-bye, Zoom. Lovely meeting you, and thank you for being a fan. Mwah.